0: Hello, and welcome to TP's Music Talk Podcast. My name is Ryan Ford. And I'm Nick Replinger. And you can find us at our website,
1: tpmusictalkpod.wordpress.com. And you can also find us at anchor.fm forward slash tpmusictalkpodcast and other major podcasting platforms by
0: searching for TP's Music Talk Podcast. You can find us on other social media as well, like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Tumblr, and others by searching for TP Music Talk Podcast or for TP Music Talk Pod on Twitter.
1: Just look for our logo. And you can also email us at tpmusictalkpodcast@gmail.com.
0: at gmail.com. We also have shared playlists on Apple Music and Spotify that you can check out by searching TP's Music Talk Podcast as well. And don't forget to click
1: the link in the description and leave us a voice message on Anchor. And feel free to leave us a message or a
2: review anywhere you're listening. It really helps us out. And don't forget, donations are always appreciated. You can find a link to donate in the description of any of our episodes.
0: No part of our show can be reproduced without permission or written consent.
1: You've heard it a million times, but that's because it's worth it. I engrave stuff. Need something engraved? I engrave stuff. Need some gifts for holidays and birthdays that are actually cool and can be totally personalized to your liking?
0: I engrave stuff. Check out their social medias. I see an Instagram giveaway very often and they're actually legit. Connect by going to iEngraveStuff.com.
1: Another thing they have is an engraving service. If you have a thermos or a bottle or a
2: baseball glove or anything you can think of, all you have to do is get in touch with the awfully friendly people from iEngraveStuff.com and one of their laser experts can get an estimate to you. It's
1: super simple and they work hard to make it easy to explore your engraving ideas. And if you go
0: to iengravestuff.com and you're shopping, be sure to type in TP10 in all caps in the promo code box at checkout. That'll get you 10% off. Check out iengravestuff today. Hello and welcome back to the show. I'm Ryan. I'm Nick. And today we're going to talk about music technology and how it's influenced the industry, music production, recording, mixing, mastering, really just all of the above when it comes to creating, producing, distributing music. And we have a very special guest today that we are excited to welcome back to the show.
2: We have Joe Kassler. Say hi.
0: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back on. Hey, thank you for being here, and thank you for letting us use your studio and your microphones and basically all the tech we have in this room right now.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, Microphones are uh, very graciously given from my job uh, as an audio engineer at my university, and so we're very fortunate to have these resources here.
0: Yeah, and I'm excited to to hear you talk about that because that's going to play into everything that we're talking about today. Uh, really quick, though, I wanted to get a couple things out of the way for the show. If you haven't heard or seen on social media, we are now on CastBox as well as TuneIn. Um, and I don't really think there's any other platforms that we can be on at this point. <laughs> so we're really excited that we finally got them all out of the way, and we hope that everyone is able to listen wherever they want to listen to us. Is there anything else we should add in, Nick, or...?
2: No, I think we can go ahead and just jump in. So I think we'll start it off just by introducing Joe. And Joe, you can talk about your interest in music production and distribution, all that stuff, and how you kind of know your background and how you got into it. And go ahead and just take it up from there.
3: Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. So throughout my life, uh, starting when I was 11 years old, I was very interested in music, and that's when I started picking up the guitar and learning to play guitar. It wasn't until I was about 18 that I I downloaded some music software to try to record some stuff on my own. It was just a little bit of uh, me experimenting with stuff. I never really uh, took it that seriously. But while I was living in Memphis, serving as a... Um, As a Christian missionary, I uh, met with a producer in Memphis who actually had his own recording studio at home. It was a professional studio. And uh, he, I mean, just like any other big producer, he had clients and he was working on lots of music and he showed us around. And he was even very gracious enough to have us record a song with him uh, during our time off. And um, uh, just being around him and seeing him do his workflow is very inspiring for me. And when I came back home, I really, I kind of wanted to learn more on how to uh, record music. And so I started recording uh, some music on my own. With an old copy of Logic Pro on uh, one of my computers, and and I just I had my guitars, I had my guitar gear, and so that was kind of all that I really had to uh, to record with. Just recording some guitar parts, putting in some programmed uh, MIDI drums and some bass, and that was it. It was it was a lot of experimentation, but throughout the years, I've been able to to learn and accumulate uh, accumulate knowledge on my own and you know, get to where I am now and hopefully go up from here.
0: Well, and I have to say, as someone, because Nick and I have kind of been around while you have been learning all of this stuff, and it's been inspiring for me to come over and see you recording and mixing, you know, the music that you create. I should probably add in, and I'm sure everybody already knows at this point, but Joe kind of records, produces, mixes, masters music for Blix10, He's kind of involved in all avenues there. And of course, Nick is the guitarist in Blix10 as well. But yeah, th- this is why we chose um, Joe. Well, Joe came to us actually and, and wanted to do this episode. And we thought it was the perfect fit because he knows so much when it comes to music technology. And, um, and
2: one thing I would like to add to that, being able to actually have been one of the people that Joe has recorded for Blix10, just seeing where we started off, what, it was about two years ago when we started Blix10? And just start seeing where you started off at the beginning, because Uber is still just buying you know all your first gear and equipment and to see where you've come from now and as you've learned you know from all your mentors at BYU and everything like that it's incredible just to see you know when I listen to our EP and so it begins all the way to our newest album, Raining Stars, and how what it's sounding like today. It's incredible just to see, just you listen to Don't Want to Hear It Anymore or Raining Stars, you know, which are two songs from each perspective of those albums for, for Blix 10, and it's just night and day. Like, Joe has worked so hard, and it's incredible just to see, you know, how far he has come, and I couldn't think of a better person to, I guess, have at the helms for Blix 10 and getting us out there. I mean, like... Blix 10 is the band that I've been with that has gone the farthest. And you know, we have music on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, you know, all those major platforms and none of that would be possible without Joe.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I, sorry, I just have to add one more thing. I feel like that has helped influence what Nick and I do with this podcast. I mean, I learn stuff from Joe every time we come over here. In fact, I've learned a couple of things already tonight about how to possibly make our podcast better. So it really, it's it's been an inspiration for us and... Yeah, it's just been really cool.
3: Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, I will give you guys kind of the warning, you know, especially since you've mentioned that I came to you f- uh, for this idea of the podcast. I definitely geek out about this stuff. So geek alert uh, to those who are listening. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely, well <laughs> I'm, I definitely uh, music technology is one of my biggest passions. And I love learning about it, talking about it, and not very many people <laughs> talk to me about it. I have a few select other audio gear nerd friends, and it, but I, I'm very happy that you guys are open and willing to let me come and uh, share some of my passions with you. And perhaps uh, you and or your listeners uh, can get something from it as well. Yeah,
0: I think they definitely will. I think we're definitely going to. And yeah, let's uh, let's get into this. So before we started this show, we were talking about possibly breaking it down into eras, you know, maybe starting and going chronologically from the beginning and the different eras of recording and, and distributing music. So yeah, c- could you maybe start, because we don't know anything about this. Yeah, so
2: go ahead and st- tell us about all the different eras there, are, and then we'll start from there and we'll go on.
3: Yeah, so just kind of as a preface before we get really into this just so that uh we're on the same page as far as terminology here and perhaps some of your listeners aren't quite aware of some of this terminology as well uh so there's two main words that describe uh, huge uh, essential universes of audio technology and that's analog versus digital analog is gear that is purely processed through circuitry and wires and uh, mechanics essentially whereas digital has computer intervention Computers come in and do much of the processing. And both sides of the spectrum between analog versus digital um, has its pros and cons. Another thing to keep in mind as we get into, uh, as we jump into talking about these different eras of music technology, is to understand really the goal of the recording studio as well as the goal of music distribution. Uh, For the recording studio, their goal is to create the best sounding music as possible, the best quality audio, which requires good quality recordings from great quality tools, tools that also make mixing uh, and mastering the music uh, flexible and easy and convenient for the engineer. And uh, these tools, when used correctly, will make the original recording sound better than they did when it was first recorded. And then the goal of music distribution is to, to make the music that people love easily accessible in a compact and portable format that will allow them to listen to their music in as many settings as possible. The goal is that these formats are good quality, but at the same time economical and practical for manufacturers. And obviously another job of music distribution is exposing people to new music, uh, the up and rising generation of artists. So that's kind of my preface here. Uh, If we understand those goals of recording studios and music distribution, I think that you can really come to appreciate the the many innovations and the progress that music technology has made over the past hundred years or so.
0: Well yeah, cuz that's the whole point of like why things have evolved, right? I mean, people want to distribute music faster, more quickly, make it more available to everyone, and that's why music has evolved the way it has and why we have everything in digital, well, most everything in digital form today and yeah, so I'm I'm excited to learn about this.
2: And <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. It's and also, it's just I think it's really cool. Just as Ryan said, know how we have all these different ways to to get I music. Mean, especially in, in our age, we we haven't been around that long. I mean, music recording's been around 180 years or something like that. And it's just where it comes from, you know, the basic of acoustics all the way down to digital. It's crazy just to see how much change, even just within the last 20 years, just because of digital.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if if someone from say the the 40s came to the future and listened to the music that we have now, I think they'd just be mind-blown at the the quality of our music, just how in-your-face it is, essentially, compared yeah. to how it was back then. Witchcraft. I know, yeah. <laughs> I mean try an EDM to someone in the 30s. Mm.
2: Oh, yeah. Like, I actually saw on this video, I don't remember if it was, like, on video on Instagram or YouTube or Facebook, but I remember seeing, like, there are these guys, they're sitting in this big van, and they, like I said, like, they souped up, like, the, the subwoofer or something like that And because they started playing the music and the bass was so loud. Like, this girl of sitting in the, passenger seat her hair just started flying everywhere because the bass is just vibrating so hard and the van is shaking and everything it's like you showed that to someone from back then maybe they would think it was a witchcraft i, oh, I okay. wonder if they
0: would even like it
3: um <laughs> yeah, yeah that's true i mean you know back to the future kind oh, of yeah. moment where they play johnny B. Good. i guess you guys yes. are ready for that yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah throwback
0: to our uh our last well two episodes ago origin and history of rock music we talked about that oh,
2: as yeah. well Uh, Yeah, 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 great episode. All right, well, let's go ahead and just start it off with the beginning then, Joe.
3: Yeah, so uh, starting from the beginning, uh, the first real era of sound recording was known as the acoustic era, and it started in uh, the mid to late 1800s. And it really started predominantly with uh, Thomas Edison's invention of uh, the phonograph. The phonograph was... A a method of recording where rather than having microphones like we have today, you have essentially this horn, which would focus the acoustical waves in the surrounding room onto essentially a stylus that would vibrate and record those acoustical vibrations onto a soft medium, such as uh, wax. Uh, Essentially, what they had was wax cylinders that would spin. And as they're spinning, the stylus would embed the grooves into the wax. And then likewise, you can also play on those grooves again uh, with the stylus. And then the, the phonograph would essentially play you back what was recorded. And uh, this was the first fundamental step of uh, recording music. And this was essentially how music was recorded. And not just music, but essentially anything uh, that people, any audio that people wanted to capture. Uh, This was how it was recorded, much uh, from the 1800s all the way until the 1920s.
0: Yeah, so movies, television, all that stuff, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, So... You know, I, I like to think about pros and cons of music technology and uh, these different eras. So the pro is that music recording was born. I know, Pretty much <laughs> like, oh, is I can listen to something and I
2: don't have to go like to the theater or something to hear it live. You know, right. you, you can just listen to it within your own home. If you, of course, if you were you no know, well off enough to have a phonograph or something like that.
3: Absolutely, and and for the the people of the time, I'm sure that this sort of stuff was magic, just like how uh, movies were were magic to the people back then, the fact that you can record a person and then hear exactly what they said 30 seconds ago, you know, that was never seen before. And now we just take it for granted. <laughs> yeah, it's kind absolutely. Of funny. Now, there were lots of uh, cons to this method of recording, though. Uh, first of all, essentially, all you had was that one, and you could even connect multiple horns, but they all led back to the very same pipe that led to that stylus. So, essentially, the only method of mixing that these engineers had was to place different instruments in different proximity to those pickup horns. So if you had a really loud instrument like drums or horns, you had to place them further away from the horns compared to say vocals or guitars. You had to place them very close to the phonograph. And it was an art that, you know, we don't necessarily need these days. I mean, they put up curtains to kind of muffle the drums in in the back of the room. Um, they had all these techniques to try to make it sound good. And the thing was, was that the entire band had to be there. The entire band had to, to play the song when it was recording. And they didn't have the luxury of re-recording. So if you mess up, you had to toss that wax cylinder and try again. And that was a very expensive mistake to make. Lots of pressure, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I, I think because um, when you watch some of those older movies and, and TV shows from way back long ago, um, a lot of times you can hear when the vocals are a little bit closer than the other instruments. Like you can hear things almost like fade in and out. It's yeah. So, I mean, you can definitely tell, although, yeah, it sounds like there definitely was an art to it and they had certain ways of making it all kind of mesh together well
3: and hmm yeah, absolutely. And another problem was that uh, not all instruments could be recorded onto phonographs. So, for instance, stringed instruments like cellos, violins, that they couldn't be picked up very well on phonographs. And so much of the very, very early recordings on these wax cylinders, you will rarely to never hear those types of instruments. And so, so would it be more like instruments like maybe like a tuba
2: or euphonium for those lower, like, like for, to replace like an upright bass or something like that, or a cello or something like that, or, or what would they use?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And well, one thing to understand is that back then the pop music was marching band music. Yeah, like John Philip Sousa and all that stuff. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. And so they had more than anything uh, brass instruments and percussion and stuff like that. And jazz music was also on the rise at that point, and a lot of times they had cornetists and other instruments like that.
0: That's fascinating. I didn't know that they had such a hard time recording stringed instruments that way, um, and it makes a lot of sense looking back at those older movies and shows, because yeah, you just hear brass instruments for the most part.
3: Uh, one movie I would recommend you guys watching uh, if you haven't listened if you haven't seen it and if your listeners haven't seen it, I recommend they check it out. Rob Scallon, uh, he is a guitarist YouTuber and he's just an incredibly creative guy. and one of the videos that he did, he actually made a series of videos where he was able to contact a person who had who has an original Thomas Edison phonograph. And using that phonograph, they recorded him, you know, playing some basic acoustic stuff. But then they tried recording his metal band using a (laughs) phonograph to see how it would sound.
2: Oh, wait, I think I remember watching that. Yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's really, really cool. And they show you how the phonograph works. And um, they have the real uh, wax cylinders there. I mean, it's such a really cool video to watch. So I encourage you guys to check that out. As far as distribution Uh, Music distribution in this era. It was really the radio that could take The music anywhere radio the exodus of radio was in 1906
0: So it had been around for a while. I mean,
3: yeah, for sure Uh, one thing to to understand about uh, These wax cylinders was that it was very very hard to copy a recording and so, essentially, in order to copy a wax cylinder, they had to play the original wax cylinder and acoustically, mechanically record it onto another cylinder. And you could only do so many copies until the original wax cylinder goes bad. And so you could only get really 100 copies per original recorded cylinder. So it wasn't really that
2: available back then to get you know, copies of like your favorite song or something like that? It was,
3: it, it, it was a rare thing. For sure. It was a luxurious kind of item. And I'm sure that uh, it, it was more of the radio stations that would have these gadgets in order to broadcast them out.
0: Well, and I'm sure it was very disappointing to know that every time you re-record or create a new uh, cylinder, wax cylinder, the quality is going to be lessened, right? I mean, if you've only got 100, yeah, like eventually it's just going to sound terrible compared to the original. And yeah, I mean, that's disappointing. <laughs>
3: yeah. So, so that was the acoustic era, and it wasn't until uh, essentially the end of the acoustic era that the wax cylinder was starting to be replaced by discs, by records, which leads into the electrical era. Now, it's called the electrical era because in the acoustic era, the phonograph was purely mechanical. So just like how stopwatches worked back then, you know, where it was wound up, it was, it was a mechanical thing, these phonographs also worked mechanically. But then we go into the electrical era, and now these phonographs are essentially electrified, where they're electrically powered. They're still recorded acoustically, like um, the phonographs in the acoustic era. But one of the biggest one of the biggest advances that the electrical era made was that now you could use microphones to start recording people, and that was huge. Uh, you didn't need to have horns anymore. Now you had microphones that could better capture the, uh, the characteristics of a single instrument. And you can be able to capture that and record it onto your recording medium.
0: Well, in records or, or vinyls, they could, I mean, they still wore out, but, uh, you know, they could withstand a lot more wear and tear, I I would say. And you could actually buy them and take them home, which you couldn't do with those wax cylinders. It was just the radio, right? So, I mean, that in itself is, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. That's probably distribution. <laughs> yeah, uh,
3: yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. That's just fine. But uh, you go into a very important thing where now they were recording on essentially these wax discs instead of wax cylinders. And essentially once these discs were, were imprinted with the audio, just like a printing press where essentially they copied the, the grooves that were in those wax discs. And with that copy, they were able to print many copies of those discs that people, yeah, then could buy and then take home with them. Now, uh, before vinyl was a thing, the, the material that they used was something called shellac. And so they would have these shellac discs, and they look very similar to vinyl discs. But yeah, people could bring them home and play them through their own uh, system, which was really a huge step in the music distribution area of the music industry. Included with the technology, they started inventing mixers and filters and compression to be able to mix all these signals from the microphones into something that would sound better when it was recorded. So, the pros and cons of this era are really quite interesting. So, the pros you had better quality recording since you were using microphones. You could use multiple microphones on, you know, even one instrument, and of course, microphones on every piece of the band.
0: Yeah, so you get less of that effect that I was talking about where things sound farther away or or more close and loud and everyone had their own mic, same distance apart, they all had their own instrument with their own mic to record, or even if they were all just using one microphone to record, it was just a better, better form of media? Is that, I don't know.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, like you said, you didn't have to worry about that proximity anymore from from the horns. not as much, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Uh, now it was all about uh, developing good quality microphones that would capture the music. Now, the cons, uh, you still it was still the situation where the whole band had to play together, and it was a one take thing. you know if they messed up the take, they had to discard uh, the disc and they had to try again. And again, you had to mix it all before you recorded. And so once, once it's recorded, that's that. You can't change it. So they, they had to do meticulous preparations before they actually recorded anything.
0: Well, and uh, it, I mean, can you imagine being an up-and-coming band and you get a chance to record something, but you only have one shot, yeah. you know, yeah. essentially, or you have to pay a lot more money? I mean... That's something that I hadn't thought about until just now, but that would be intense. It would be very, uh, it, yeah, nerve wracking. Absolutely,
2: and I think also it's because you know there are those stakes that you have to get it just right, or you're gonna have to spend more money or something like that. I think that really, you know, showed that all the musicians that were popular, everybody loved and listened to. You know, it really showed their talent and probably something i don't know, maybe they didn't but in my head maybe people you know they were like oh wow you know this person's great you know their talent really had to shine out for people to say okay i want to spend my time and my money recording these guys they really had to be, probably sound good live for producers and other people in the music industry to want to record and sign them
0: Oh, yeah. And then, I mean, think about all the practice that would go into it. And, I mean, when you look at artists today, there's some very skilled and very talented artists, but I bet a lot of them wouldn't be able to just sit down and in one take do a whole song. You know, it's it was a different form of art back then, in a way.
3: Yeah, uh, I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, the, the whole th- notion where back then it was a live recording. It wasn't a multi-track recording. It was everything was live. You know, what you hear is what you get from that band. If you went and saw Louis Armstrong live, he would sound exactly as he did in his recordings. Funny story about Louis Armstrong, actually. While they were recording, he actually dropped his music. And, you know, he didn't want to just stop the music, you know, because they weren't going to waste that take. So what he did was, as he was picking up the music, he started saying gibberish from his mouth. Oh, is
2: that where scatting came from?
3: Exactly. Oh, Scatting came because Louis Armstrong didn't want to waste a take. That is really cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, it just goes to show uh, how much of a professional Louis Armstrong was.
2: And in case if anybody doesn't know where Scatting is, it's that old music where you hear like, "doop wop do scuba da boo da ba ba da That type of singing back then that was... Really popular. If you don't know what scatting is, just go watch the Jungle Book by Disney. (laughs) (laughs) The old cartoon version.
3: (laughs) I don't know, I think you should go uh, and be a jazz singer or something like that, get into jazz ensemble and being uh, a scatting artist or something. Me? (laughs) Oh, yeah. That was (laughs) pretty pretty, good. That was pretty good right there. I I don't know. I don't (laughs) think I would be that good at scatting.
0: (laughs) No, that explains so much, though. I mean, that explains why it was so popular back then. Yeah, I didn't know that.
3: Uh, just back on the disc, essentially, they used shellac until about 1948. 1948 was when uh, vinyl was used as the material for, for records. And then ever since, um, no one's ever really gone back from vinyl. It's always been vinyl from 1948 on. Just to kind of appreciate it, I think it's very interesting how, of course, vinyl was the, the popular form of distribution back then. And it had a bit of a falling out in the the 80s and the 90s. But now we're getting into the time in the 2000s where people are looking back on vinyl and are wanting to collect vinyl again. Yeah, vinyl is a very big thing that's come back, which is kind of surprising. I remember some of my
2: friends in junior high, they were really getting into vinyls instead of buying CDs. They bought record players and they would go to all the music stores. I remember... I don't think it's still around, but Grey Whale was the store. I of us called me, but go and just look through all the vinyls and see if they could find any good gems or things like that. And they would just brag about, oh, I have like Pink Floyd on vinyl or I have Death Leopard or Boston or or like, oh my gosh, I just found a Nir- no Nirvana's Nevermind on vinyl. you know."
0: <laughs> well, and uh, my little sister, like I thought I was avid about music, but my little sister, she collects vinyls and she has like Journey and yeah, Pink Floyd, like all of these it prints these amazing vinyls and it, she even will uh, buy like the soundtracks to TV shows or movies like she just bought a vinyl version of the Stranger Things soundtrack to the the new season and so she is actually collecting these vinyls and i mean i i own a handful (laughs) and so it makes me feel like uh you know if i'm so into music i should probably own more
3: vinyls (laughs) well you know uh, one of the biggest reasons why people love vinyl so much is because of the quality of the the music that's imprinted in there vinyl was recorded at a certain speed where you know the very subtle but Uh, golden characteristics of the recording are able to be imprinted and you know when you play it you you get that whole experience of you know how it probably sounded in the studio. Now of course how big are vinyl discs? They're
2: yeah, they're they're pretty,
3: like a lot, very, very large dinner plate or something. Yeah, like that, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're pretty large. And, you know, one side holds maybe, what, five songs, five, six songs? And then, like, later on, they had, like, side Bs, too, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that's one thing to, to understand is that it, it had incredible quality, which the CDs and MP3s can't really compete with. But the price that you have to pay for quality is size essentially so? Uh, when it comes to physical size, the the vinyls are large. If you want audio files, you know, computer files with quality that can compete with vinyl, they have to be really big files. You know, MP3 files are like three, four, five megabytes. Wave files, which are files that really can compete with uh, the quality of vinyl, are at least a hundred megabytes each, and so. That's something that you got to understand uh, when it comes to music distribution. Is if you want better quality, you have to have more storage.
0: And I just wanted to add in, uh, if anybody has ever seen the movie Warm Bodies, there's this great scene in Warm Bodies where a woman asks this zombie that kidnapped her <laughs> why he likes vinyls, and he just kind of mumbles and goes more alive. And I think that that's a great way to describe vinyls because you get more life through a vinyl than I would say you get through a CD or other other outlets, uh, digital. Uh, another thing I wanted to add is I believe our CDs, do they, I, I heard somewhere that they actually have more quality than a vinyl. Is that true?
3: No, absolutely not. Okay, okay. Uh, CDs are essentially MP3 format. They're uh, sampled at 44.1 kilosamples per second at 16 bits. Vinyls
2: are a lot better than that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why people still collect them today, and why it's still a thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I personally have always loved how vinyls sound, and I I would consider I don't know I always thought it was that more alive type sound, but it's it's kind of cool to find out that they are higher quality as well.
3: Yeah. They are, so people still still go to them.
2: Although one question, though, that I have, I don't know if you know the answer, Joe, but if the quality on vinyl is a lot better than on a CD, why did, for a while... You know, vinyls didn't really weren't around, and its CD was kind of the king of, of, like, music distribution. Why did they go from vinyl to CD? Was it because it became smaller, more compact, or what was the reason?
3: Oh, yeah, the, the slogan, I guess you could say, music distribution is more compact, more convenient. And so, you know, with vinyls, you can't play them in your car. That's true, yeah. You know, you can't have your whole vinyl collection with you on road trips. And in fact, you know, if they sit in your car, they could get destroyed. CDs, you can have... a a case you know the size of a book and you could have you know 24 cds each of which have 12 songs you have hundreds and hundreds of songs just in a book-sized case so people wanted convenience they didn't uh you can't necessarily unless if you were a true audiophile i suppose a true audio nut you can't really distinguish the uh quality between uh, vinyl and CDs, but you know more than that. CDs were better economically yeah. to make, easier to make, easier to distribute. So it I just g- became the thing. I, just, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we'll probably dwell a little bit more on that when we get into the digital era. But yeah, we probably should get into the ne- next one, <laughs> the the magnetic. <laughs> yeah, English, I feel what like called, I, right? I yeah. made a skip a step there. Sorry <laughs> yeah, about that. it's okay. The the electric era was oh, very right. very important there. Uh, The magnetic era was super, super important, and it's the longest-standing era before the digital era. And Nick and I were talking about this uh, before we started this podcast, but yeah, uh, magnetic tapes were actually a German invention. Uh, It was invented in the 30s and was essentially isolated to German use until the end of World War II when the Allies discovered you know this german invention and they were blown away when they played these tapes because they had the very same quality as if they were first broadcasted out on the radio mm. and you know no one had that kind of quality uh when it comes to audio recording back in that day and so obviously what did we do we stole it <laughs> German <engineering. laughs> just like everything else we stole it from the germans <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah but but then uh, it was used for uh, audio recording. It was actually, when it was first brought into the U.S., it was advertised to Hollywood as a means to, to record music. And then was born Tape Machines. And Tape Machines just opened a whole world to audio recording. Eventually, essentially, we made uh, these really thick tapes. And, you know, your typical tapes and your cassette tapes are are very, very uh, thin as far as width goes, but these tapes are very, very wide, and they had enough room to record 16 individual tracks of audio. And what came out of that was multi-track recording. Now you don't have to have the full band there recording at the very same time in order to, to create the music. You could record uh, songs one instrument at a time, and then using the tape machine technology, you can wheel it back and, and then record on the next little sliver of space on the tape to record your guitars, and then the next sliver is your vocals and all that sort of stuff. And so, and you know what, what else was great about tape? You could re-record over tape. You didn't have to discard the tape if someone made a mistake. It's easy. Just re-record over that same section, and then you're golden.
0: Yeah, from what I understand, it's still very expensive to replace. But yeah, you had a lot more options as far as, you know, multiple tracks, and you could re-record over it. This is actually my favorite era of music right here, I would say. Um, Not that I know that much. I'm learning so much tonight, but I love... Yeah, recording on tape, like that's always been my favorite favorite way of recording music, I guess.
3: Oh yeah, and it opened up post-production. So after we record onto that tape, now they can route out the audio that is stored on those tapes and put it through the mixing board. You didn't have to put it through the mixing board and then onto the tape. It was kind of the other way around. And that was amazing because then after you record, you can actually spend the time to mix it, to make it sound good. And they further developed tools like equalization or EQ and compression uh, to help make the music experience sound so much better. You can hear an individual instrument and it all seemed to glue together none of the instruments seemed to fit out of place and so the magnetic era when it comes to post-production mixing was just an incredibly magical era when it comes to music recording innovations so i I think we really dwelled on the uh the the pros in this era and just to further elaborate this was the the pinnacle of the analog era because not only did you have these huge mixing boards uh, to mix the music on, and I actually have some pictures for you guys, but unfortunately I guess your listeners won't be able to to hear it. But, you know, for instance, you'd have these mixing boards, which the... Which the audio would pass through.
0: And by the way, we can absolutely post these online. Like we can we can put this together when we post this so people are able to go down and see what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, perfect. So go back and look
1: at the images, guys.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Please check it out. Yeah. It'll happen for
3: you. This particular desk is a solid state logic desk. And solid state logic is an incredibly they're like the gold standard of studio consoles or mixing boards. I mean, it was with Solid State Logic that recorded the Beatles and um, so on and so forth. So, but it wasn't just mixing boards because, you know, usually you had those tools like equalization and compression on mixing boards. But then what was popular was actually making separate units to add to your studio. You know, more specialized compressors and EQs that give a slightly different coloration, a slightly different character to the tracks that you applied them to. And so that was just really, really incredible. Now, the thing is, is that it was super expensive. Like, really, really, really expensive. For instance, a solid state logic mixing board today for a studio, the biggest one that they have is about $300,000. That is it's a crazy. Penny. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. And each of those compressors are about $300. I mean, $3,000, I mean. <laughs> um, so, even <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. So the thing is, is that if you wanted to record music, good quality music, back in the day, you just simply couldn't do it without a recording studio. And they were very, very expensive. So bands back then were really at the mercy of these record labels if they wanted to be recorded and you know of course record labels they they look at the band and say okay how can we get money out of these people mm-hmm. you know are they marketable and that was the only way that you could really squeeze yourself into any good recording studio well so
2: do you here you, can oh, go, no, first. No, you go ahead <laughs> okay well so do you feel that kind of like also influenced what kind of music was recorded and what people kind of music people liked because you know it was all at the mercy of the industry or do you feel like people still had you no know, kind of Influence what kind of music was popular to record, or, or or do you feel like that influenced that at all? Because nobody could re- really record themselves. It's more like the studios are like, okay, we want this kind of thing because we know it sells, and that's what became popular. Or
3: I, I really think that music studios look at the current following of of the band, and so bands always have a local following, you know. And as they build up that local following, word comes to mouth, and you know these. Uh, record label companies they send out scouts they'd send out scouts to all these different venues that's how bruce springsteen got big for instance was a scout was at uh near a venue where he was playing and then bruce springsteen knew that the the scout was there and he essentially (laughs) begged the scout to listen to him play just give him a chance and that's when you know bruce springsteen became a thing. So, yeah, scouts and when they recognize that band has a big following, you know, then they can really pay attention to you. I gotcha.
0: Well, and I was going to say to play the devil's advocate and, you know, just thinking about people who produce music and who have these logic boards that are so expensive. I mean, I would probably charge a pretty penny for people to use it, too, which granted, I mean, from what I've heard about. I don't know, people who run studios, it can be a pretty wicked game, um, especially to up-and-coming bands. They really have to keep their wits about themselves. And But I can see why they charge so much and, and why they do the things that they do. And also, an, another person that I thought of while we were talking about all this that I think is a good example of someone who sends scouts out to pick up people, which is this is jumping way into the future, but uh, Dr. Dre. I mean, even today, he sends scouts out. And they find, you know, someone who they think would be the next up-and-coming rapper, bring him back to the studio, you know, and Dre goes at it with him because he's such a good producer.
3: Yeah, um, and, you know, while we're on this topic of record labels and all that, here's something that you got to understand. And I watched this video online that uh, talked about record labels and signing people. And these are the statistics today, not not technically back then in the Magnetic era, though I'm sure... You know similar sorts of polls uh, apply but today from start to finish to get a a very brand new artist uh, signed get the music recorded and get them internationally famous or nationally famous even costs a record label three million dollars it's a lot of money yeah and so essentially they are wagering a lot of money that you get big it's a large gamble yeah yeah <laughs> And the thing is, they don't simply just give it to you. You have to pay them back to a certain extent. Yeah, with all the money that you make when
2: selling all that music and performing, yeah. right?
3: Yeah, uh, primarily performing and merchandise. That That's where they get you. We'll get into this later, but no one makes money off of selling music anymore.
0: Well, this would be where I would ask you. You know, is it more worth it to create your own studio at home and make music from the home rather than going to a big? But we'll we'll yeah, save that for the end when we yeah, get to our questions. That, that,
3: that, that's a big. Um, yeah, that is, topic that's a whole kind other can of, kind of, of so. worms. Yes. Yeah. I guess. yeah. <laughs> uh, as far as distribution back then, then came out uh, because it was the magnetic era and tapes were available. They started making tape formatted forms of music that people could play. Specifically, the eight track cassettes and the, the compact cassettes. They came out generally sort of around the same time. 8-tracks were specifically designed for cars. You know, you, you'd put the 8-track into the 8-track player in the car, and now Unlike what they've had before, people had more than just their radio in the car. They could actually play the music that they want in the car, which was a very, very new thing. But then the compact cassette really started taking the throne from the 8-track cassette. And then, you know, the 8-track was just never really heard from again. The compact cassettes were even smaller than the 8-track. Unlike the 8-track, you had the ability to fast-forward and rewind at will. And they were just smaller than 8-track. Did I say that already?
0: Uh, well, I mean, compact cassette, but I no, like, I think it's important to stress that we went from this eight track that was quite a bit bigger, and now we're down to this like compact little thing that fits in your pocket. I personally, uh, when I look back at cassettes, I remember them growing up, and I mean, they definitely wouldn't be on the top of my list as far as ways to listen to music. But for what they were at the time, and for what they allowed people to do, I I definitely think that they were worth it and and awesome.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean compare your collection of vinyls you know which is yay big (laughs) compare your collection of eight tracks and then compare your collection of cassettes you know you can really condense down a similar music collection into a very very small compact space which you can just take in your car and listen to the music that you like when you're on road trips that was just a very new and luxurious thing back then
0: They were also, in a way, fairly durable. I I mean, they weren't, and that's one of the reasons I don't really like them. But at the same time, like, you could take it out, throw it in the back seat. It'd be fine. Like, you wouldn't do that with the seat. (laughs) As long as the tape didn't get all tangled up. Exactly. Or as long as, yeah, as long as the tape didn't get scratched. I remember having,
2: you know... Cassette tapes, too, and sometimes we had little boom boxes to play them in. And sometimes, you know, while we're winding, something would get caught, and then all of a sudden, you get this big, huge, giant <laughs> tangle. And you're trying to use a pencil or pen to try and get it apart, <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and then you'd get weird skipping, like if you went over a big bump in the car, or uh, you know, if it oh, got, I too forgot tangled. about yeah I yeah, remember that, yeah, because Well, go ahead,
2: oh no, yeah, just no, just my dad, you know, had cassettes, and then eventually he went to CDs,
0: too, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like I said, it's, it's not my favorite outlet to listen to music from, but it was definitely. Definitely, I, I don't know. I think it was revolutionary.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, the magnetic era that was that was just like a real golden age as far as the quality of the music. It was just better than ever. Engineers had so much control. Some of the cons of using tape machines, though, was that they were very, very high maintenance. You know, whenever you put a new set of tape onto the recording reels yeah had to clean the tape machine dust or oil or dirt or whatever exactly otherwise it could ruin the recording and plus you you were also somewhat limited on the tracks that you could record obviously having 16 tracks is better than one yeah (laughs) yes (laughs) that's true But By far. Yeah, 16 re-recordable tracks is better than one non-re-recordable track. But still, you were just limited to to 16 tracks, and so a lot of times, especially when you were recording bigger bands, you had to get a little bit more creative on how you captured those bands. But then that led into the digital era. The very first signs of the digital era was when recording studios started using not analog reel-to-reel tapes, but actually digital videotapes they were tapes that rather than recording analog electromagnetic information it was recording digital PCM uh, information and you can uh, the way that you can think of this is like a spinning disc in your hard drive you know those spinning disks in you know your your slightly older <laughs> version computers used a spinning disk and a laser would would detect the would read it very same thing with these digital tapes was that the tapes would go through the spool and a reader would read the digital information and that's how uh, tracks were recorded and accessed again for mixing now this was very very expensive But it was the first step towards using computers as a medium to record and edit music. Again, it was very, very expensive. It was very expensive. Uh, The very first sort of digital audio workstation was somewhere around $160,000. So it was more of a luxury for studios. But one positive thing that comes out of it was that it recorded 32 tracks instead of just 16 tracks. So you had double the capabilities of your recording. Well, and
0: I'm I'm sure like anything, people didn't just make the jump right away. It was brand new technology, super expensive. You're an up and coming band. You're like, I'm just going to record on tape. You know, we get 16 tracks. It still sounds great. Like, let's just use that.
2: Plus, I'm sure sometimes people will kind, of, kind of set in their ways going from analog, where you have to use the magnetic tape. Then all of a sudden, you know, you're just doing everything digitally on a computer. It's a totally different atmosphere, I'm sure. And so people like, "No, I'm more used to this. This is how it's always, it's always been done, you know, acoustically or you know with analog or whatever." And then all of a sudden, you can use synthetic sounds now.
3: You know, yeah. Doesn't. Here's the catch, though, is that it was because of those digital advances that made CDs possible. And so, you know, when CDs started coming out, more and more studios were kind of pushed to be able to record their music digitally, you know, in order to get their music onto CDs.
0: Makes sense. Okay.
3: So, but even though all those recordings were stored digitally, they were still mixed using the old-school analog equipment. Again, a former distribution that came on the rise was CDs, which absolutely just trumped cassettes, and it it really took the music distribution by storm, for sure.
0: Well, yeah, even vinyls went out of style for a long time, and they were better quality. And, uh, I mean, of course, they're coming back now. I I think we have more audiophiles in the world today, people you know, study up on it more, and so they're starting to come back into style, but yeah, it's definitely interesting.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's what really shook the rails in the music industry was when the digital era came, and we I, I mentioned some digital technology was coming, but that was sort of the precursor to the real controversial stuff was using actual personal computers, PCs as a ways to record and edit your music. Pro Tools came along as... It it wasn't necessarily the first software. And these softwares are called DAWs or DAWs, digital audio workstations. And uh, when Pro Tools came along, there was a lot of controversy that went along. People (laughs) were like, oh, it could never, ever compare to to analog recording. And there was kind of a, a riot within recording engineers, as well as the bands that were recording them. You know, they didn't like the idea of recording straight into a computer and then using the files that were recorded in the computer. And the thing is, is that for a long time, they were right, is computers back then just were not great quality. They, they didn't nearly have the processing capabilities or even the storage or the memory to create audio files that could ever compete with tape machines.
0: Yeah, unless you had a computer as big as the room you're in. I mean, back then, they just, they weren't the same, yeah. Yeah,
3: hundreds of thousands of dollars, that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah.
3: But as years have gone by... What's well, happened? Computers have gotten even smaller and even more powerful than their predecessors.
0: IEngravestuff.com is a local engraving service based in Linden, Utah. If you want an amazing engraving done on one of your personal belongings, get in touch with one of their specialists today. You might meet McKay, who is one of the main brains of the operation. He's also one of our close friends and the drummer of Nick's band Blix 10. Follow their Instagram page to stay in touch with the latest news for I Engrave Stuff. And be sure to type in TP10 in all caps in the promo code
1: box when you're shopping online at their store. I really enjoy their work. They make engraving look easy when it actually has quite a few factors that come into play. Many things can switch and cause a problem,
2: but the pyros at I Engrave Stuff have it down to a science. They are continually improving their
1: craft, which has been cool to see. If you want in on this action, look up I Engrave Stuff on Instagram, Facebook, and IEngraveStuff.com. Yep, that's the letter. I. And then engrave. And then stuff. IEngraveStuff.com.
3: Now we are living in an age, right now, where computer quality absolutely competes with analog quality. But here's the thing why people love computers a lot better than analog. First of all, way cheaper. You can get a computer, you can get a laptop for, you know, $2,000 for a really decent computer by, you know, a couple hundred dollars worth of audio software and that completely replaces the need to go to a huge $2 million recording studio and being signed. You, you have uh, kids now who are recording and mixing in their bedrooms and they're making number one hits. I mean... Yeah, like Post Malone
0: or uh, Bil- Billie yeah. Eilish. I mean she recorded a lot of her music in her room on her bed I think or something like that.
3: Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean we're in my my room here <laughs> and you guys can see it, in my software here these components here replace essentially that solid state logic desk. Now of course I'm not saying that it's as good quality as an SSL cuz you know you get what you pay for. But you see here I can add in anything that I want. I can change uh, volume, I can add EQ and compression just like any any mixing board. What makes it nice is that you're not dealing with a huge, bulky piece of gear. It only utilizes the space that you really need. So right now we're recording into five tracks. That's all that's pulled up. We don't have dozens and dozens of, of, uh, of and empty tracks buttons and yeah. levers
2: and things like that.
3: Yeah, exactly. And so it's a really simplified and sophisticated and great quality way to record your music now and the thing is is that it really really revolutionized everything because not only can you re-record stuff but you can go into the software and change the files you can change how things sound you can get as nick picky and perfectionist as you want and it's actually very very rare today for you to find a studio that is still completely analog almost every studio out there is even especially the big studios out there include a computer in some way in their workflow
0: by the way, if any of our listeners want to see what Joe's studio looks like, if it's okay, Joe, I, w- I would suggest that they go to, you know, either the Blix 10 Facebook page or, well,
2: or the Vibe Studios, yeah, which Vibe jo- Music which Studios as, as well.
0: Exactly. And, and they'll be able to see pictures of what all this looks like and the stuff that he uses. I mean, it doesn't look like much, but it does a lot. You have so many tools at your disposal.
3: Yeah, you know, and that's the thing is that nowadays there's the big question of, oh, what's necessary to make a good sounding track? And the thing that that especially beginners need to understand is you don't need to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to get good quality recordings. Yeah, and
2: also for me just me personally, just my opinion, I think you know, what makes a good track is completely subjective to you as a listener, too. You could just you know, want maybe just a vocal and a backing guitar, or you could have a whole orchestra or jazz bands behind with explosions or whatever yeah. you wanted. You know? It's all really the sky's the limit with whatever you want sound you
3: want to create. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to sell this a little bit more. I mean, rather than just recording everything from scratch, you have these small computers and you can store things. Thousands and thousands of samples that you could reuse anytime that you want. Plus, with the digital era, with, with the software came the birth of brand new instruments that are completely virtual, they're completely digital. You cannot have EDM music without the digital plugins that are used to make those crazy types of sounds. Those sounds cannot exist in the real analog world. EDM music just wouldn't be where it was today without the the flexibility and the power of digital technology.
0: Well, and I think we have certain artists and bands to thank for that. I mean, along with the studios and you know the people who make these amazing pro tools. But I mean, you have artists like Nine Inch Nails who had you know, kind of started the industrial genre. He was using all kinds of synthetic sounds, but he still, you know, had rock and things of that nature infused with it. So yeah, it, thanks to some of these artists in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, I think that they've really helped influence EDM. But this is an, e- an EDM episode.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but a little bit on the distribution in this era. I don't know if you guys remember. Do you guys remember when the first iPod came out? I had a first-generation iPod Nano. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you remember, like, how Apple sell, uh, sold it? Like, Steve Jobs went up to that stage, and he said, you know, now you don't have to carry on CDs anymore. You can have a thousand songs in the palm of your hand. It was yep.
0: earth-shattering. Absolutely. Oh,
3: yeah. Earth-shattering. Absolutely. And that that was because of MP3 files. Computer engineers began to realize that you didn't have to have vinyl-quality recordings to please the the music consumer you can condense them down into mp3 files which are very very small formatted audio files to store on your ipod or on your computer and then just listen to those whenever you wanted you could create playlists you can just have so many different artists and so many different types of music just all right there easily accessible in your ipod yeah, I know for me, you know, when
2: I first got my first generation
3: iPod Nano, it was
2: two gigabytes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, the max it held was like 500 songs or something like that. But I just remember before I ever had my my iPod, the only times I really listened to music a lot was maybe when I was wa- watching a movie and there's music on there or, you know, riding in the car with my mom or my dad or putting a CD or a cassette tape in a boom box, which all those things you can't have with you all, all the time. But then I got my iPod Nano. It was almost on me at all times. <laughs> I always, you know, just had you know my headphones wrapped around it. Oh, you know, yeah. I would just have it, you know, walking around in school if I had an be like, oh guys, I just put this new song on my iPod and I'd show my fans and you know, they put we pop in the headphones and I click and p- press play and they're like, oh yeah, this song is awesome. And you know, like I could show people music right then and there at school, which is something you couldn't do before. Mm. I mean, it just it really changed it, the way that we listen to music. And it's even different to how we do it today with
3: streaming services. Mm-hmm. Yeah that's the next thing that I wanted to talk about is stream streaming has also really rattled the music distribution scene the thing is is that music streaming is incredible for the consumer now you don't have to store your songs on your ipod anymore You don't have to buy each individual song or each individual album you just pay a monthly subscription and then you have every song that is ever out there just at your feet but while it's incredible for the consumer it is horrible for the musician. It's horrible for the music industry. It's horrible for recording studios. They've really really suffered. Nowadays, you uh as a musician, you cannot earn significant money from people just streaming your your music. I mean, yeah, sure, maybe you'd get 5 bucks for every like 10,000 streams or something <laughs> like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but it's it's good for the musician in that. It's very easy to show people your music. So streaming is great for the musician In the sense of exposing people to your music That's great But in terms of making a living Making money off of it You know, it absolutely tanks it That's why bands go on tour That's the only way they can make sufficient money So guys, if you want to Support the bands that you love. Support the artists that you love. Buy their CDs. Go to their concerts. Buy their merchandise. That's the only way that they're making their money from their music. It's not from you listening to them on Spotify. It's from really donating to their merchandise and seeing them. And yeah, plus, if I could also add on to that, for
2: me, I got to see two of my favorite bands. Well, Joe actually came with me to the concert. My all-time favorite band is Three Days Grace, and my second all-time favorite is Breaking Benjamin. and they played together live here in Utah about a month, month and a half ago. And I first fell in love with you know, those bands when I first heard them on YouTube. It's like, wow, this song, this music is amazing. But hearing them live for the first time, oh my gosh it's just incredible the sounds and the vibrations and everything that you hear is just like, it's incredible. And does, and in my personal opinion, doesn't compare as much as it does you know, listening you know, to a, a pair of headphones, but definitely go on, out and support them and you you won't be disappointed because these bands put in so much time and hard work in,
0: into their music. I couldn't agree more. I wanted to add something really quick and I have stuff to say about this too, but jumping back to the whole iPod craze and all that, it was funny because it was so influential and you had all of these other companies jump up and try to copy Apple. But because of the way that it was marketed by Steve Jobs and his company, they just kind of killed the competition right out the gate. I mean, you had, like, the Zune that that Microsoft made to try and compete, and it was really nice. I mean, you could play video from it, and but, yeah, I think that, like, the way they marketed it and just what it did for music in general was just so great. And, yeah, then as far as concerts and all that, I... I was going to ask you, yeah, I mean, that has to be how they're making money these days, is going on tour, playing live concerts. And I think that they still probably make a killing from that. But like you said earlier in this episode, they also are kind of paying back the the studio. Yeah, you know that's right.
3: Although it is really nice when uh, your band has their own studio. <laughs> that is very true. Like Foo so, Fighters, right? Yeah, yeah. Foo Fighters. <laughs> Breaking Benjamin has their own studio really as well. I didn't know that. Awesome. Benjamin Burnley is a producer. Oh, really? Yeah. That's amazing. He produced their music, man. So That's cool. That's one thing to, to to know. So, yeah, when you get really big like that, that's a good way to stay self-sufficient <laughs> yeah, for sure. and make money. So I, I just kind of wanted to, to contrast being a musician now versus being a musician back in the day. Back in the day, you were at the mercy of the, the record labels in order to get your stuff recorded and to get your stuff distributed. But when the stuff is distributed, people go to the store, they buy your vinyls, a good chunk of that money goes to you. And, of course, being back then, music innovation was very, very new, and so uh, a lot of people were experimenting with new playgrounds, especially with the advancements of technology. You know, for instance, Jimi Hendrix was... Making incredible sounds that no one ever dreamed would be on an electric guitar, but that's a topic for another day, I suppose <laughs> <laughs> But contrast that with today. Today, you don't need a record label to make your own music You can make your music right at home. You don't need a record label to distribute your music You can get online with like CD Baby or Distro kid, Upload your music to one of those platforms and they will automatically distribute uh, your music to all the music platforms out there The only reason why you would really want a label is if... You believed that it would get you somewhere as far as fame goes Record labels, of course, they've been around for a while So, of course, they have the power to put your music on the radio They have the power to put your music on ads and stuff And recommend your music to people's Pandora playlists And Spotify plays, etc, etc They're a good way to expose people you don't know to your music But again, with record labels, you're really selling your soul to them And you have to pay them off in order to really make ends meet there. So that's kind of the thing that people debate between and a lot more people are deciding that they're gonna be independent. You have a lot more bands today who are wanting to be independent from these labels and record at home and just distribute it from home. You know what the new biggest way to get big is in music? YouTube. Yeah. Upload your yeah. stuff to YouTube, make music videos. That's how you can make a living off of YouTube. And you can get seriously big off of YouTube. And a lot of times, record labels have scouts dedicated to YouTube. (laughs) Well, uh,
0: I think Justin Bieber is a perfect example of that. I mean, look how he got big. He was making YouTube videos, and then he just happened to run into Usher on the street, I think. But it was because of those YouTube videos that he had created and the following he had built that helped project him and get him as popular as he
3: was. Yeah, absolutely. So really, the just the tides have completely turned in the music industry and for the musician and for the listener. Things are are just not what they were as they were back then and it never will be. Music the music industry will never be the same again. Recording music will never be the same again. It's much harder to get a job as a studio engineer, a professional studio engineer in these prestigious studios because they're starting to become a thing of the past and because people are just recording at home. Mainly the people that are recording at those big studios are the internationally famous artists like Ed Sheeran and Taylor Swift. And, you know, all these is super uber famous people, but that's because they got people behind their backs to, to pay off the, the record label and they're making mountains of money anyway. So. Yeah, and
0: that's what they started with. And so, I mean... You know, sorry to bring up Billie Eilish again, but I wonder if she will use a studio or if she'll continue to record from home. Like uh, these artists that are coming up that started out that way, just recording at their house. I mean, are they going to go to big major studios or are they going to continue to go with what has worked for them in the past?
3: Yeah. So that's what I got as far as the history of music, where we are today versus where we were. Do you guys have questions? I mean, I got other stuff for you. I can give you how bands can record music, my journey as a producer and recommendations. I don't know. I'm an open book now for you guys.
2: Well, I think it would be interesting now to go into you know how you record Licks 10 and other people that you record with your own little home studio here called The Vibe Studios. You can check that out on Facebook and all that stuff. And But yeah, just tell about your process, how you do it, and how you prefer to
3: do things. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, I'm not super rich, and so I don't have much analog gear at all what I have is essentially the basics of what people need to record to record these days what you need is a decent computer with decent processing power and a DAW digital audio workstation my choice is Logic Pro but other popular choices are Pro Tools Ableton Live Cubase A Reason sometimes people like Fruity Loops completely depends Studio One When people ask me which DAW is the best DAW, it is whichever one you are the most familiar with. Because all of these professional DAW softwares serve mostly the same functionality. Some of them have their own little flair on things, but they all essentially serve the same purpose. But you do need one. And my choice is Logic Pro because I'm a Mac guy. Yeah, I am that guy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. he's okay Mac we're all that guy, guy here yeah, so. uh, yeah i was sitting at this table we got a macbook pro out and two ipads out iphones and I apple Mac. watches we got nothing but apple yeah here, right? so, so many apple products uh, yeah yeah Well, I think you guys know who you need to get to sponsor you. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hey, Apple. Come on, Apple. (laughs) (laughs) Take a chance. (laughs) But yeah, and then the second thing that they really need is something called a recording interface. This is essentially a box that you connect to your computer, usually with a USB cable. There's other versions that you can use. Lightning cable, USB-C, even Ethernet cable, but the most basic is just a USB cable. You connect to your computer with this USB cable, and then all of a sudden, this box has usually two outputs for, like, speakers. That's another thing that you're going to need is decent quality uh, studio speakers. But then you also have inputs. A, these inputs um, can take in microphone cables, so if you wanted to record anything with a microphone. Or they could take in guitar jacks if you wanted to record guitars straight into the interface. And that is how you connect to your Music software those three things are the most fundamental parts of a studio is if you have decent speakers If you have an interface and you have a decent computer with decent software uh, Those are really the the main things that you need everything else simply builds upon that so you guys can see on my desk I have lots of extra things, but these are very secondary functions to me They enhance my workflow because you know having knobs to to turn and buttons to push inspires me because I'm you know I I do live performances, I mix live performances, and so I like actually moving physical faders rather than moving the virtual faders with a mouse.
0: Mm.
3: How important is, uh,
0: I don't want to get you off subject, but how important is like soundproofing when it comes to that?
3: It can actually be very, very important. Not necessarily soundproofing as much as uh, acoustic treatment. What you want is to be able to be in an environment where the room does not affect what your ears hear. And so your room can be set up in a way where it actually takes out a lot of the, the bass from what you're hearing from the speakers. It's actually really trippy. My room isn't the most acoustically efficient. So if you go into that corner over there and I'm playing music, you will actually hear a lot of bass over there. And you won't get quite as much bass where I'm sitting, where I'm actually doing the mixing.
0: Yeah, this he's talking about the far corner of his room, kind of where his guitar stand is, and it like whereas closer to his desk where all the work is done, it's it's a little bit more it's treated yeah. a little.
3: And you guys can look up YouTube videos. There are lots of YouTube videos where people actually build like homemade acoustic panels and they show you how you're supposed to arrange your room in order to to make it acoustically efficient and it's, it's actually not as hard as it seems. You can get some really decent results just by adding a few panels and foam here and there. And I mean, I, I've seen projects where people did it in their garage and their garage was initially Super, super echoey and live. But then after they acoustically treated it, it sounded great. So you you can learn it all on YouTube. And you can learn mixing on YouTube. That's another incredible thing, is that now you don't need to have several years in school to know how to mix. You can learn how to mix on YouTube from people who post tutorials online, anyone can learn how to mix.
0: Yeah, there's so much information available now. It's just crazy. I guess
2: that's the great thing about Along came with the digital age, also came the internet, which changed a lot of things too.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So in, in, in my own journey, uh, I started collecting some of this gear, and I got a bigger interface because I wanted to start recording real drums. I didn't just want to stick with MIDI drums for Blix 10, and that uh, drum recording is a a science and an art in and of itself, and I won't get into it now. But after I learned how to to record, uh, essentially, I had to learn about the instruments that i'm recording so when i learned how to record drums i actually had to understand the drums as an instrument itself when you're recording a guitar you have to understand the characteristics of the guitar itself and acoustic guitars and electric guitars are very different and with electric guitars you have to learn a whole science on the the processing for a guitar so the the preamp the 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 power amp the the speakers and the effects and there's a lot that go goes into that and i had to learn all that in order to get better, to get better results. In fact, if it's all right with you guys, I'd like to show you a, sort of a before and after of the same song, but, you know, sort of a difference in how I recorded the songs and how I mixed it. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. So this is going to be in Blix10's new album. Here's the before. So this recording was recorded about a year and a half ago, and this is how it sounds. Alright, and here's that same song after I re-recorded it and remixed it. What do you guys think well, night and day I yeah mean,
2: i mean to me it's like the first one it's like it sounds decent but there's like a audio like sandpaper ish feel to it <laughs> and then the other one it's like it's just smooth as butter you know <laughs> yeah and you
0: can catch all the little inflections from the instruments like i don't know it's kind of hard to explain in words but yeah you can catch so much more in that new new sample
3: yeah uh just to compare here's a couple other songs from the the blix 10 ep So, this was a year ago when uh, we released this uh, EP. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it begins. Let's see. Like, for instance, here's Go. This one is probably the one I'm least proud of. And then here is. Our new single, Raining Stars. The shell of the man inside of me
2: Do you know The pain that I felt so
3: And you know what I found, guys, the difference between those mixes? It was understanding the instruments that I was working with, and it was understanding the tools that I was working with as well. It's not the the gear itself that you're working with that makes the difference. It's how you use it. It's how you capture the music that really makes the difference.
1: Well, and, sorry, you go, you go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, I
2: mean, like... All this stuff that you use to record all the stuff is just like a regular instrument. You could put a custom PR24 from PRS, you know, in the hands of someone who has no how, idea how to play the guitar. That's like a two, three thousand dollar guitar, but it's not going to sound that great if someone you know, didn't put the time and effort to learn how to play it.
3: Yeah, that's a really great analogy. I like that.
0: Well, not to take this away from music, but I can't help but notice certain commonalities when it comes to recording a podcast. I mean, Nick and I, we're just getting started with all this, but as we go, it seems like every time that we record we figure out a way to make it sound just a little bit better, or at least we hope it sounds better. (laughs) And, you know, we'll go back and put in new, like, for instance, a lot of our audience probably doesn't know this, but we have re-recorded our intro, I think, two times? Um, Yeah, two times. Yeah, yeah, one or two times and splice that back into our episode. So we always try to improve and, you know, just talking about these different eras of music and how the digital era gave people access to so much from home. I think the same can be said about podcasts because it used to just be radio shows and now you can have a radio show from your bedroom. Mm-hmm. So I, I just couldn't help but notice some similarities.
3: Absolutely applies to podcasts. It, it also applies to video production as well. People can make videos from home now that look great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what my brother's doing. <laughs> he he makes the the videos for Blix10 and so it's his goal to to learn the ways of the the video producer
0: which if no one has checked those out you definitely should you can look them up on youtube i think that would probably be the easiest outlet to go to or... yeah youtube check yeah john it. has all
2: kinds of great videos he has a youtube channel called construction rocks he has Blix 10 music videos and it's- and he even has little fun side projects like he did a, an office parody of a quiet place too that you can check out on YouTube as well. And like he has all kinds of different things out there. So you should definitely go check
3: him out too.
0: Yeah, and we're gonna try and link all of this stuff and and hopefully we get all of it. We've been mentioning a lot of things, but we have we're talking about so much.
3: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You guys might want to think about like splicing up this episode and making it a 2 part or something like that. <laughs> I don't we're, know. We're already at an hour and a half. We might just keep it long. I don't yeah, know. Uh, that, that's completely fine with me. <laughs> I have some stuff that I think your uh, listeners might enjoy. Yeah, go ahead, Joe. Yeah. Uh, this is the the process for recording. Now, uh, within, say, a professional setting, you actually have a lot of people that are working with your band or you, to to record your music. First of all, you have a recording engineer whose specific job is to capture your instrument or your voice or your band in the best way possible. His job is to get the best quality recordings for the mixing engineer. The mixing engineer, his job is to take those recordings that were already recorded and then put them together, mix them, and make them sound good. Now there's the producer. Now there's a difference between a producer and a mixing engineer, actually. The producer is actually more of a creative outlet for the band. A producer's job is actually to work with the band in the studio to make their songs as best as possible. Because while a band you know might have an idea of how they want the song to be, they don't necessarily know how that can translate into recordings. And sometimes what they have envisioned for recordings doesn't turn out the best way when it's actually recorded. And so a producer's job is to help them with the creativity, help them develop these songs better into something that, for one, translates into recordings better, but also something that perhaps the the typical listener might enjoy a little bit better. Then there's the mastering engineer. The mastering engineer isn't a mixer. He takes a stereo recording from the mixer, you know, after everything's been mixed, assuming that the, the mixing engineer mixed everything properly. The mastering engineer prepares the your song to be released worldwide. And that means getting it ready to sound good on any speaker. Mastering engineers, they're most important tools is actually the speakers they use. The speakers that mastering engineers use are very, very, very expensive. More expensive than a mixing engineer's typical monitor speakers. And these speakers are designed to make your song sound bad. (laughs) It's supposed to reveal all of the bad angles of your song. It's supposed to reveal everything wrong with the song. And then the mastering engineer just turns a few knobs on the EQ and the compression and a limiter, fixes it, makes it sound good, makes it loud. Uh, There's something in the music industry called the loudness war, where people think that loud is better, but that's not necessarily true. Um, but, yeah, he gets that ready, and then once he is done, it's ready to be distributed, and then it's up to the record label or whoever distributes whoever your distributor is to distribute your music. and that's the process from starting to end. Now, that isn't all the way at the end because now you have to actually advertise your music. you have to get it out there. you have to recommend it to your your friends and you know, do everything you can to to get people to listen to your music. But that's essentially the process when you want to record your music, just in general. Now, those roles that I was talking about, the the recording engineer, mixing engineer, the producer, the mastering engineer, and the distributor, they can all be separate guys, or they could all be one guy. They could be you. You could do all of that.
0: Perfect example. I hate to bring him up again, but Dr. Dre, I feel like he does all of those roles. He he always, uh, yeah, mixes, masters, records, produces... Yeah, one person can do it all. Yeah, absolutely.
3: But, you know, some of you guys might be asking, well, how can I get into this? How, how can I get started with recording and how can I become a good recording engineer? Well, you know, find your inspiration, I think, is the first step. My inspiration, of course, was that guy that I met in Memphis, his name. Uh, his uh, professional name is I Make Mad Beats. You guys can go check him out on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, he's he's a really inspiring, uh, down-to-earth guy, and he makes some really great sort of soul and trap kind of beats. Really great stuff. And uh, another is one of my favorite bands called Periphery. They're a very formidable band in the the progressive uh, music genre, and they record everything at home. <laughs> And even some of them live in different parts of the world, too. Oh, yeah. So they're like sharing audio files between their own personal studios, but they do everything at home. And they are known for how incredibly aggressive their tones are, how incredibly amazing their tones are. And so they're very looked up to in not only the the rock community, but just in the recording community as well. And so those guys were my inspirations and a lot of my mixing techniques I learned from the bassist slash mixing engineer for Periphery. And so, yeah, learn who your inspirations are and try to learn from them if you can or learn from other people on the Internet on how to do this sort of stuff. There's thousands and thousands of tutorials on how you can get started on your music career and music techniques, engineering techniques or creative techniques, whatever it may be.
0: Well, and as Joe said before, it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be music. I mean it can be video, it can be podcasts, it can be TikTok. Like there's so many different ways of recording media now. I mean, it doesn't have to be music. It it just has to be a passion.
3: Yeah, absolutely. My other bit of advice is to share it with your friends. Get feedback on the stuff that you're creating. When you make your first recording. You know, share it with your family, share it with your significant other, your friends, and even uh, just online. Try to get as much feedback as you can and don't reject the feedback because the listener or the viewer is right. You know, I hate to say it, but, you know, the, the, the typical people who are listening or watching your stuff, that's the kind of people that you want to impress. You want to be able to make something that people will think, oh yeah, that was professionally made, or that that's a really well-made song. So get get feedback from people. Another is you yourself compare your content with other people's content of the same genre. So if I were making a an acoustic song, I'd wanna compare my acoustic song to professional acoustic songs on iTunes right now. If I were making a rock song, I wanna compare my song to other rock songs, make sure it sounds good. Uh, if I were making a video, compare that to other professionally made videos that are on YouTube right now. Compare your stuff to what's already out there and you yourself, through your own critiques, can get you farther than anything else, I believe. Yeah,
2: I think that's some pretty solid advice. And definitely when you go out and compare that, and let's say you're, you're trying to compare to something, but you're like, you just can't figure it out. You just got to do what Joe said. You just got to reach out to people and say, hey, you know, can you help me with this? Because I know Joe has told me before, you know, he takes the stuff that he records for Blix Town all the time and goes to his mentors that he works with at, at BYU and gets tips and points because these are pros in the industry right now. He gets, and I can definitely see that. He really does take his own advice to heart because like you heard with some of the audios that Joe played earlier, it really is night and day and Joe really does practice what he preaches. And the more you do that, you know, don't get discouraged by it, but definitely, you know, see it as a challenge. Like, how can I overcome that? How can I become better? How can I maybe, you know, even find ways to to share and help me you know, get
3: pointers to other people? Absolutely. You really want to shed your ego in your situations. You you cannot have the mentality, well, I'm the engineer and I know what's best <laughs> sort of thing. <laughs> you know. And especially if you have clients, work with your clients, make them happy about the music that you're making. I have a band that's uh, one of my clients right now. And when I mix their music, I want to make sure that it sounds good to them. And if they want any tweaks, I make sure that I do them and try to exceed expectations. And... You know, listen to other people's stuff. Now, listen to other people's advice. Now, of course, other people will have different music influences. So, for instance, if you take your rock song to someone who loves edm they're probably going to want to hear bigger kick drums bigger bass beats and stuff like that so you want to definitely understand where what their background is and where they're coming from and why they might be giving you the advice that they are and you know of course you make the ultimate decisions on how you want your mix to sound but just remember once it's released it's released and you can't change anything about (laughs) it
0: yeah Well, and what I would add to that, I think something that keeps being brought up is uh, experience. And, I mean, you might have a ton of experience in something. You might have a lot of passion and a lot of knowledge about something. But, you know, you do have to go to other people to gain more knowledge and gain more experience on certain things. So, I mean, you want to make whatever you're passionate about unique, but you also want to you know, listen to the advice and knowledge of others, as Joe and Nick were saying. And sorry, I think we're getting a little short on time. So I'm going to try and knock out some of the, I mean, we can talk all night if you want to. I'm I'm totally happy (laughs) with it. (laughs) But I I want to try and knock out some of these other questions as we go really quick. Another one we had kind of jumping back to the different eras. How do you feel about like vinyls, CDs, compact cassettes, eight tracks, all of those different forms of media? Is there one that you prefer over another? Sorry, I'm kind of putting you on the spot. Yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely. You know, it's. I'm always gonna listen to everything on my computer. Uh, when I listen to music, I'm gonna listen to it on my phone or on my computer. That's my primary source of listening to music. But I do love the sentiment of collecting these old school methods of file formats. So, my. And this is very much my mother, but she's collected dozens and dozens of vinyls. And once in a while, I love pulling one out and playing it through our. Our system and obviously they're older and so they, they have a bit of noise in them and stuff but it's nice to keep that alive you know i'm a very sentimental kind of guy in fact in my studio right now i have a old school reel-to-reel tape machine and you know just purely for the sentiment of having something old school and appreciate it for what it was and you know even using it once in a while and in fact, I tried recording my band Song Raining Stars on it before. Unfortunately, it was damaged on the way here, so I think some circuitry needs to be fixed, but it's it, it's been fun having it. Yeah, we have quite the cassette tape collection as well, though I hardly ever cracked that out. And then CDs. You know, I, I'm always going to live CDs, man. I mean... It's what we grew up on. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. And for me, it's always having it's that, that physical copy in your hand oh, rather
2: yeah. than just a digital download from streaming from... Spotify or from iTunes or Apple Music or whatever,
3: and you can import the songs from your CD into your computer. And exactly, still yeah, do that. Yeah. And I just love the just what they they put into the CD, the artwork, and just obviously the the passion. It's it's literally a physical imprint of their music that you can collect and carry with you. So.
0: And I miss all the nostalgic moments like I I mentioned how, you know, we mentioned things like getting the tape all tangled in a cassette or when you're riding the car and you go over a large bump and the song skips a beat. Like, I don't know, in a way, those things are cherished memories for me or, you know, my first iPod or like going through all these different eras and growing up with everything evolving so fast. Like I really do cherish the, the memories I have of all of them. Another question that we had for you, and maybe we had already kind of answered this one. It says, as someone who records music, would you ever be selective about whether you would put music you create onto a streaming service or CD, vinyl, etc.? A lot of bands kind of are, um, even today.
3: I don't know. I'd want to get my music out there as much as I can. I mean, I feel like people would listen to more of my music if it was on a streaming service or on iTunes or anything like that. But if the demand was high, I would love to distribute my stuff on CDs or on vinyls. We've done CDs before, but we have yet to do vinyls, and I think yeah, that'd that would be Yeah, that would be something. Yeah, I hadn't ever really thought about cool. that, yeah.
0: I would be your first person, first just, customer. Know, like, some
2: people like, love to get, you know, some of the more modern artists, they'll have like vinyls on, like, neon different colors, like in, like, orange oh, and yeah. pink and red and things like that. Yeah. I'd even
3: love to do that just for me, man. Yeah. I mean, just, just put... put... Put the Blix 10 album on a vinyl and just keep that. That would be really cool, yeah. Have it for posterity or something. So, yeah, I'm totally open to that stuff.
0: That's awesome. Because I know a lot of bands. I I, I hate to bring them up again because I feel like I bring them up every episode. But Tool, you know, for the longest time, they didn't have their music on streaming services. And yeah, they
2: they released that very recently, only a few months ago.
0: Yeah, we yeah, with their new album. Well,
3: right. I I mean, understandably so. You you guys know what I was talking about. Streaming is the devil. For, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for musicians,
0: seems to be um,
3: who want to make money at least.
0: Mm. So, but yeah. Um, Let's see, what else have we got? How has the evolution of technology in the studio influenced the production or quality of music? I think we've kind of gone over that, so we'll skip that. What advice would you give to people who want to start a band or record music or other media based on the experiences you have with it? I think you already answered that, but is there any last thoughts you
3: wanted to, to add in? If that's really what you're passionate about, if you want to get into that, you know, stick to it. I mean. Even if you have to like makeshift with all the, if you don't have all
2: the equipment, like I remember the first band I ever formed was, I think it was in seventh or eighth grade. I didn't even have an electric guitar back then. I just had my acoustic guitar and, you know, and then we, and for a microphone, we used a karaoke machine for the, yeah. for the microphone, <laughs> yeah. but, that's but awesome. I got all my friends who, who were interested in making the band and we started writing music and, and just performing with that stuff you know stuff that you wouldn't even normally use a live band or stuff like it like just do it just find some way to do it and eventually you will you know find the gear to, to, to so you can actually go out and perform and do all that stuff just work at it you know just find ways around it even if money is an obstacle
3: oh yeah do your research too and there are thousands of youtube videos out there to get you going it's it's super easy to get i mean walk into a guitar center and ask them that question and you know those guys are about as geeky as me and they can (laughs) they can actually show you the stuff hey this is what you gotta buy this is what you gotta do and it can be very very cheap it's very very flexible for any budget at all and
2: they also have special financing deals as well too
3: yeah Absolutely, so, and then when it comes to actually a band itself, I mean, you go ahead and start making music even if you don't have other people around you to make music with. Form a band with people that you can really connect with. They don't necessarily have to have the same style as you, but they do have to connect with you to some sort of extent, you know, with the chemistry of the band. I mean, Blix10, we as a band have very, very different influences between each other, but... You know what, my favorite songs are the songs where we actually work on it together. Like each of us contributes a little bit to it. Each of us puts in our own flair, our own style. And those are just incredible songs. Like, Raining Stars, that's one of those songs. It's just so great. And it's largely because I love these guys. I love everybody in Blix 10. love you too, man. Thanks, uh, bro. Yeah. Nick, I, I, I've been best friends with Nick since high school. I, and McKay, he was in my first band. Love the guy. I grew up with Ryan. Josh is a little bit new, but he's awesome. And he really connects with the band well. And that was an important thing for us as we were looking for a new singer. Adam was great, too. Without Adam, there'd be no Blix 10. And, of course, Ben as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, free my homeboy. I mean, I was freaking. Uh, he's actually taking guitars for lessons for me now. So, oh really? I didn't know. Uh, that. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, he's he he's left me. He's gone to no, bigger, Arizona. Yeah, bigger better things. Yeah, down yeah there. and he's got a full on <laughs> beard now that he's gone from BYU. So and, and again, we
0: encourage you to check out Blix tens page and and learn more about the members of this band because I mean, yeah, we're talking him up because. <laughs> because we want them to succeed but they deserve to succeed and if you want to learn more about them you got to check them out let's see another question how has what you have learned about recording and producing music affected your
3: life specifically joe oh like on a personal level yeah Uh well you know what originally i wanted to get into college to actually study this thing as a major but looking into the music industry and where it's at now, I didn't really see that as a very good option. And so I decided to get into the the engineering side of things, actually going into electrical engineering. And electrical engineering has really given me a deeper understanding of music technology and the technology that we use today and the evolution of technology over the years. Couple that with my, I don't want to say obsession, but in my passion, For recording and music itself together just really has helped me develop as a person. And looking forward to a career where I'm actually working to uh, design AV systems for new buildings and renovated buildings with an engineering consulting firm. And, you know, I really love that job and I look forward to to working it. And I look forward to having the studio as my own little side business. And maybe, maybe someday I could have it as a full-time business as well. But the thing is, is I love it when I can make a song or I can record a song and I show it to somebody and they're like, wait, this is you? This is you guys? You made this? This is something that I would listen to. That's the kind of feedback that I've been getting from our new single, Raining Stars. That's the kind of stuff that I've been getting uh, when I record other people's music as well. And music changes people. Music is such a foundational part of society, uh, society in general, but especially in this modern society, for good or for worse. But I like to think that it has a very good foundation of what it means to be human. And since it's my passion, it's especially it's especially foundational for me. And creating that balance of, of passion versus logic engineering versus art it's you know it's made me what i am and i wouldn't trade it for anything else honestly
0: Can we just take what you said right there and just like paste it into the description box of Transmitter? (laughs) Because I feel like (laughs) Nick and I, that's exactly... Well, that's
2: exactly why we started Transmitter was, you know, all about that passion. and how it's helped us grow and learn. And
0: how music can affect people. Yeah, I mean there's... I couldn't have... We couldn't have said it any better, I don't think. So yeah, so at this point is there anything else that you wanted to kind of add in to either the, the different eras that we've talked about or any Anything that, I don't know, advice for up and coming bands or, or people who want to start a career in music? I, I don't like know. Like if you're anything... on
2: your deathbed and you had to talk about this specific topic, what, what would you want to mention before your last dying yeah, breath? Yeah, just
0: like any last thoughts.
2: Over... Any last
3: thoughts? <laughs> yeah. No,
2: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> We've done See, nothing. I, but I, put I, I on might the spot. need a minute.
3: Uh, yeah, I might need a minute here. Um, don't let it burn you out. Hmm. Music was meant to enhance your life. It was meant to make your life better. So many people give up so much for music that they lose all passion for it. And I think that that is the saddest thing ever. I mean, it's, it's such a big part of our lives. It's, it's like losing a loved one. It's it beca- becoming apathetic towards something that is so beautiful is is just so fundamentally sad. So when you do music, when you do any of this stuff, find the balance. There's so much more to life than just music. You know, don't kill yourself over it. Uh, you're supposed to love it and have enough of it in your life where you will always love it. Uh, don't distance yourself away from it. Don't distance yourself away from your passions. Always have it in your life, but don't kill yourself over it. And I think that you'll get the most happiness out of it. I, you know, I've talked with lots of people who majored in music and music performance in colleges, and they said they just lost all passion for music. You know, their fire died. And for me, music is what I have to look forward to. You know, at the end of the day, when I'm exhausted from learning differential equations and wireless system circuitry, I get to come home and I get to play with my guitar. I get to you know, mix some music, make something great. And, you know, that's that's what I have to to suggest, is don't neglect the loved ones in your life, don't neglect your health needs, don't neglect the other important things. I always try to spend time with my dog, you know, every day. You know, so realize that there's more to the world than music, and then music will enhance
0: your world. And I like how you talk about that balance too because it is a balance, isn't it? I mean, like anything in life, if you have too much of it, it's it's gonna be a detriment rather than something that that enhances your life. so. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I don't know if, if we're all kind of in agreement here, start kind of closing things out. I did want to kind of summarize what we had talked about. You know, we talked about the different ears of music. We talked about
2: the distribution of, yeah. of, of music and how it transformed over mm-hmm. over time with all the different forms of recording and how it just enhanced until all, we get all the way to the digital age. And then, and then we talked mm-hmm. about Joe's experience with the recording and how he learned and how uh, and now he's teaching other people and expanding to new different horizons and and then yeah i th- i think it's been a really great episode and i hope you guys learned something new and you were even inspired by it and we thank you guys for tuning in
0: yeah we're gonna try and link everything that we can and have photos for you guys to look at and yeah where can uh where can people find you joe and and everything that you're working on anything that you want to share at all
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, they can follow Blix Ten right now. We're in the process of finishing up our album. Uh, I do have a page for my studio called The Vibe Music Studio, and there's even a website, thevibemusicstudio.com. And, you know, I have my own YouTube page as well, although I I hardly ever upload to that. Also, I need a better uh, social media presence right now, so... (laughs) you know, you, you ask me how people can find me. It's like, um. Hey, man. I need to get better at that, For <laughs> all so that I'm you have going on. So, everybody go check
2: out Joe so that he has a reason to go on yes. the updated yeah. stuff. <laughs> and for all yeah. that you have going
3: on, I'm sure everyone will forgive you. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, thanks for having me on the show, guys. It really means a lot to me that you guys had me again.
0: Hey, thank you so much. I mean, you, like I said, are a big inspiration for what we do right now, so. Yeah, and it definitely won't be the last time you're out
2: here
3: for sure.
0: No, I appreciate no. that. <laughs> I mean, I, oh my gosh, we need to talk about Periphery, man. <laughs> You've kind of oh got gosh, me hooked, yeah. so.
3: Yeah, you should've come with us to their concert, man. Yeah. I would love to. Concert,
0: yeah. I need That's to get right. out to more concerts. But, uh, oh, we should probably end off with some lyrics. Do you you have any? Oh,
3: lyrics. Oh, I didn't think about this yet. Yeah, I got some lyrics for you. I actually have two lyrics for you, if that's all right. Oh, of course. Uh, One of them is from one of my new favorite Breaking Benjamin songs called Close Your Eyes. The lyrics for the chorus goes, Take away the dark inside and lead me to the light. All will fade before your eyes as we turn the tides. I will bring the dream to life. Hold on, just hold on. I will keep you here inside. Just close your eyes. The, the second lyric uh, means a lot to me, actually. getting very personal. Uh, it goes like this. Somebody once told me that the world is going to roll me. I ain't the sharpest tool in the shed. And she was looking kind of dumb with her finger and her thumb in the shape of a nail. On, on her, her forehead. forehead. <laughs> you know it, too. I do. Oh, my goodness. I was trying to hold it in. I'm like,
2: this is a serious moment. I can't laugh. <laughs> I just had to chime in on that, that last
0: part. <laughs> oh, man. <sighs> Thank you so much again, Joe. And, yeah, thanks so much for whoever is listening right now.
2: Yeah. Stay tuned for more.
0: <laughs> See you next time.